Wednesday morning, about 8.15, Kara Koffler arrived here. She was the first staff person to arrive in the office, and as she approached the door, she saw these packages um, outside the door. She at first assumed that in the Christmas rush, our UPS truck driver had arrived after hours. Kara had left at 7 the night before, so it would have had to have arrived after that. She, uh, the person perhaps hid the boxes behind the planter so they wouldn't be visible from the street. But when Kara looked a little more closely at the boxes, she noticed that there were no labels, no return address labels, or any other markings that there would be if these boxes had been mailed. So she thought for a moment, decided to be cautious, came into the building. Now, uh, for the past year, uh, Minneapolis police have been using our facility each week for training purposes. They're going through critical incident training. And so we've made friends with some of the officers. She went downstairs to see if one of those officers was there, but they were in a training session, and so it wasn't really appropriate to break in. So she came back upstairs and wondered what she ought to do and decided, although it seemed like at first a little bit of an overreaction, she called 911. One of the police officers showed up and agreed that these boxes looked suspicious. So he made the decision to bring the bomb squad here to City Church. Now, I had a breakfast meeting that morning, so I arrived a little bit later, actually after the officer had arrived, before the bomb squad had arrived, and they waved me away from the front entrance, made me come in a side door, and a little bit later, the technical team arrived. And with an x-ray machine, they were able to determine that these boxes were not dangerous, but they were very curious about what was inside. So they opened them, first one and then all three of the boxes. And what did they find? Well, each of the boxes contained a sealed box with 500 uncirculated American Silver Eagle coins. That's 1,500 one-ounce silver coins. What are they worth? Well, if you look there on the right, I circled it in red up there. These boxes, each one of them, is worth $10,000. So the three boxes represent $30,000 in silver coins. How did they get there? Well, we're speculating, but perhaps they were stolen and maybe left. A burglar might have been pursued either by the person they robbed or by the police. Um, And the thief... uh, decided to abandon them, come back and pick them up later. Or perhaps someone stole them and then realized how difficult it would be to sell uncirculated registered coins and so decided to dump the boxes, and this seemed like a logical place. Or perhaps it is an anonymous donation to City Church. But that seems strange because there's no marking on the outside or the inside of the boxes um, indicating that this is an end-of-year donation to the church. So after the contents had been examined, the lead investigator took the boxes back to uh, MPD headquarters. They've been entered as evidence, and in case uh, somebody comes forward and says they've been robbed. Um, So the question actually still remains. Was this stolen property or an anonymous contribution? And by Wednesday afternoon here on the staff, there were two camps. There was the, wow, this is an amazing contribution camp, and there was the no way camp. And I happened to have been in the no way camp. Who leaves a gift like that without a note? And especially in such an insecure manner. And wouldn't you want to be able to write this off on your taxes? Get a receipt for a contribution. So we had a lively conversation that included other alternatives, including the guilty conscience option. It was about 5 p.m. Not everyone was here, and uh, one of our officer friends popped into the office to update us on the investigation and said that, The previous evening, apparently just a few blocks away, there had been the report of a robbery of several guns and some coins. And so I went home that evening thinking, okay, this has all been solved. 
and the amazing contribution people are going to be a little disappointed. But it's not the end of the story. Because late Thursday morning, the next morning, our officer friend popped back into the office to tell us that Minneapolis police investigation had uh, interviewed the person who'd been robbed and found that their report of a theft was for guns and about a dozen coins. Not 1,500, but just a dozen coins. So where is all of this at? Well, for the next 30 days or so, this will remain an active investigation. Anyone who comes forward would be asked to provide proof that the coins are theirs and they would be returned to them. If not, Minneapolis police will hold these coins until about July when they will be given to us. Now, there is one other possibility here, and that is that one of you made this contribution. In that case, you will need to contact Minneapolis police, prove that these are your coins, and then they will release them to us. And if you give us your name, we will give you, gladly, a receipt allowing you to claim the contribution on your 2016 taxes. Now, I got to tell you, for pastors, stories like these are gifts. Like grace, they are unmerited and rare. And the best part is that this particular story happened on this week when the theme is give more. <laughs> really. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're in the middle of a series called The Advent Conspiracy, a series that focuses on the struggle that we all have between Santa and Scrooge, between those who forget Jesus and those who are absolutely upset, frustrated with the over-the-top celebrating that it makes them grumpy. So how do we reconnect with the true meaning of Christmas without stripping all the fun out of the season? And that's what we're trying to unpack this Advent. This series is designed to get us to think differently about Christmas, to conspire, to take it from what it's been, to, what it, to take it back to what it's meant to be. And so our themes this year have been to learn to worship fully to spend less, to give more, and to love all. Last week's theme was to spend less, and that meant my job was to scold you. And I told you and warned you that this week my job is to pry more money out of your wallets. And I warned you, and you came back despite that and the snow. But I really did wonder whether some of you might choose to take the week off. Now, last week what we said about spending less is that it is really about the Christian value of simplicity. We talked about how easy it is for the stuff to pile up, how simple it is to get distracted with all the busyness of the season, that we need to learn to be content with what we have, to simplify our lives so that Jesus doesn't get squeezed out. So I hope that this week you've been able to step back from the hustle and bustle of life long enough to reflect and to make room in your hearts for Jesus. Now, as you can see, the themes of spend less and give more are related, although the money angle is just one facet of the less and more dynamic. Yes, we're to spend less, and yes, we're to resist the cultural pressures to overconsume and overspend, and yes, we're to spend less in order to be able to give more. But the priority in all of this is to put Jesus first. Now, maybe you've been wondering how Christmas got so wrapped up with this present giving and receiving. And sure, Christmas is about a birthday, the birthday of Jesus. So why then are we giving gifts to one another? As Chris Rock said, all this is for Jesus' birthday, and he's like the least materialistic dude ever. Now, there also is the story about the wise men. You know, the guys from the east who brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the Christ child. But notice, they weren't giving gifts to each other either. They were giving gifts to Jesus. And then there's the jolly guy in the red suit, 
who actually is based, as many of you know, on a historical figure, a man named Nicholas, who was born in the year 270 in the Greek-speaking area on the southern coast of what now is Turkey. Um, If you know the story, you know that his parents died in an epidemic when he was young. They left him a considerable sum of money, and he kept none of it. Instead, he gave it away in an attempt to make a difference in the lives of others. The most famous story about Nicholas is that there were three girls who needed dowry money. This was money that was necessary to be able to find a good husband and to allow them to, to pursue marriage. He gave them each a bag of gold. And the story actually is that he was going down the street. He threw it through an open window. It happened to land, and stories vary, either a pair of shoes that were seated by the, placed by the fire or stockings that were there hanging to dry. And that's why the custom of children hanging stockings or putting out shoes in various countries um, are there eagerly awaiting the gifts from St. Nicholas. Now, that story most likely didn't happen, but Nicholas later did become a bishop, a leader in the ancient church, and he was known throughout the land for his generosity. And he died on December 6th in the year 343. It's known now in many parts of the world as St. Nicholas Day. And eventually the custom emerged of giving gifts to the poor on St. Nicholas's feast day. But the reason gift giving really became a big part of the Christmas season is probably more because marketers seized on those stories and others as a way of turning this into an opportunity for a shopping extravaganza. And that's the part that makes so many people grumpy. Now it's easy to get things confused at the Christmas season. Family here at City Church told me the story. Uh, They were talking to their kids about the Christmas story, and parents asked the children, um, who who are Jesus' mother and father? And the kids thought about it, and the oldest daughter said, is it Dancer and Prancer? If you ask any three-year-old about the holiday, you're likely to hear about a guy in a red suit who lives up north and spends the year making toys and monitoring kids' behavior and then goes and loads it all in a sleigh on Christmas Eve and makes one incredible UPS run through the sky and delivers these presents to kids all over the world. So kids do get confused by stories of elves and red-nosed reindeer and a snowman who comes to life. But personally, I don't feel much like declaring war on Christmas, but I do want everyone to know the real Christmas story. In many ways, it's a much more compelling and important story that helps us understand why this gift-giving thing perhaps has some merit, even if we need to recalibrate what we're doing. The Christmas story is so familiar that I almost don't even need to read it. And most of the time you hear the story, you hear it from Luke. In Luke chapter 2, Luke gives all these details about the story and the circumstances of the birth itself. He tells us about Caesar's census, about Mary and Joseph's long journey as a result of that to Bethlehem, about the crummy accommodations, about the birth of this sweet baby, and then the angels appearing in the sky to some shepherds who then went to see Jesus. The other biographer that gives us a story of the birth of Jesus is Matthew, and his version is a little shorter, a little more straightforward, but it also contains a powerful theological detail that I don't want us to miss this Christmas season. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and again, he starts out in a very matter-of-fact manner, saying, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this version of the story lets us in on some of the social difficulties that surrounded the birth of Jesus, and that's namely, how did Mary get pregnant? And it's very likely that for the rest of Joseph and Mary's life, there was a little bit of a hint of scandal that kind of went with them because this is just not something that happens. But the detail that I want to focus on this morning is the detail that comes in verse 23. And it's here that Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. And he says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's a powerful statement. And it has powerful implications as well. It means that 2,000 years ago, that Jesus, the very Son of God, took on flesh and bones. He chose to enter our world to experience the joys and sorrows of being a human being, to live among us, to experience our reality, and to be one of us. You have to see what a gift this is, that the God of the universe came to live among us. The one who was up there came down here. The Son of God humbled himself and became one of us, giving up the privileges of heaven to travel all the way to Bethlehem, a journey that would lead to the cross. Now the implication is in all of this is that in Jesus we have a God who can relate to us. The God of Christmas is not detached. He's not aloof. He can identify with our experiences. He entered our world. He accepted our limitations. He made himself vulnerable, exposed himself to our temptations, experienced the bitterness of our sorrows. Everything that in life we experience. And in the end, he was tried, he was mocked, he was spat upon, he was condemned, he was flogged, he was crucified. The victim of gross injustice. In this, he bore our sin, dying our death on the cross. It means that Jesus sympathizes with us when when we suffer. Other world religions promise to lead us to a God up there. Buddhism has a God who's detached from suffering. But the Christian God enters the world and suffers with us and for us. Only Christian faith has a God who comes to find us, a God who promises to be with us in the midst of difficulty. I'm not sure in every instance why he doesn't deliver us from every calamity that we face, but I do know that God in Christ, Christ, God is with us, beside us. He'll not abandon us. Only Christian faith offers us a God who joins us in our pain and brings us peace. If all we had was a sentimental story, a heartwarming story, we would not have a God who promises to be with us. Instead, we'd have a God who tells us that we're on our own or no God at all. So do you see what a gift Jesus is? He is God's greatest gift to us, and God is generous. In fact, he is generosity defined. And the biblical writers constantly reflect on this theme. And I want to give you just four examples. And the first is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave, 
His one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, when he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Or again from St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he ex- explicitly says it, thank be to God for his indescribable gift. And then from Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So we need to understand that God's generosity with us is something to marvel at. It's awe-inspiring. It's humbling. It's something to imitate. As God has been generous with us then, we ought to be generous with others. And that's where this can get uncomfortable. Let me just be honest with you. Pastors and churches have a bad reputation for asking for money. In fact, if you're not a Christian, this may be one of the reasons that you've chosen not to follow Jesus because this turns you off. You've heard about churches and pastors who constantly ask for money. I don't think that criticism is fully fair. There are a few bad apples who've spoiled it for the rest of us. But let me just say, if that's a problem for you, understand that we're not asking for your money. But we do believe that generosity is an important value. And if you'll hang with us, maybe you'll understand why we do what we do. The Christian view of money and possessions is that they are a gift from God, that they are not really ours, that all we've received is from God, and we're accountable for using them in responsible ways. Money is something that can be used and it can be misused. Money and possessions are powerful, so powerful that we can become enslaved by greed. That's why the biblical writers encourage us to learn to be content with what we have. St. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Very simply saying, if we have the basics of life, we can become content. So contentment is not about getting what we want, but about getting what God wants for us. It's learning to distinguish between need and want. It's learning, as we talked about last week, to embrace simplicity. Simplicity helps us reduce our dependence on things and increase our dependence on God. And it's ultimately simplicity that allows us to pursue the virtue of generosity and generosity that helps us break the power of greed in our lives. Generosity shows that we still care about our possessions, but we do not love them. That we can still use our possessions, but they no longer have control over us. And generosity is commanded. Again, from Paul's letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, it's good to enjoy the things that God's given us. But then he says, command them to be generous and willing to share. This week I looked it up. Americans will spend an average of $900 each on presents this Christmas. And as Kara mentioned in the announcement time, our goal this Christmas is to encourage you to spend just a little less. Let's say maybe 10% less so that we together could do something that we cannot do on our own. And in this case, this year, our project is to help Hope Academy. But I also want to challenge you to give more than money, to give your time, to give the gift of presents this Christmas season to visit someone who could use company, maybe someone who's struggling or is discouraged, to invite someone over, to make a new friend or to reconnect with a loved one and make them a priority. That requires is that we give ourselves to someone else. 
When we truly understand the Christmas story, we realize that God rescued us not to give us more stuff, but by giving us his son. And so we can give too. We can give money, we can give time, we can give blood. I even have a friend who gave a kidney. But we can be generous with what God has given us and give some of that to others. And I know what you're thinking, at least some of you anyway. You're thinking, did we arrange this series so that we could hit you up for a little bit more money here at the end of the year? Um, to get a few more of you to give to our project with Hope Academy. And the answer is no, this series just fell this way, but it is a theme, and it's an important biblical theme. Generosity is an important biblical value. And so for that, I'm not apologetic, because I believe in City Church, I believe in Hope Academy, I believe in our other ministry partners. And I've seen the great good that your generosity over the years here at City Church has done for us and for others. And I believe that that will continue to be the case in the future. I absolutely believe in what we're doing and invite you to participate. But I am far more concerned that you learn the value of generosity. This is a generous church. We've always had what we have needed. And I want us to continue to learn this biblical value. So if you think we have an ulterior motive, let me just tell you, don't worry about giving to here. If it'd make you more comfortable, give to a neighbor, the poor, or a cause you believe in. But give and experience the blessing that the gift of generosity has in our lives. The decisions that we make um, about money can have a significant impact not only in the world but also in our lives. So this Christmas, let's spend just a little less on ourselves and a little more on others. And if you have a few silver coins lying around, maybe you could put them in an envelope and send them to a friend who might need something. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. The gift that we have in him is priceless, so priceless that our lives, our very lives depend on it. Father, we thank you for the one who came, who lived the life that we have lived, but lived it perfectly, who died on a cross so that we might experience the incredible gift of eternal life with you for eternity. Father, help us this Christmas season to learn not just to give more, but to give more with joy. To learn that our lives do not, cannot be defined by our things, but only can be defined by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.